Good morning, friends. Good morning, friends. Uh, thanks for having that great com I hate to interrupt those conversations. I know that's, uh, there's a lot of deep stuff that goes on. It's a big question, isn't it? What's the most important thing in the Christian life? And that's a theme that we'll be investigating a little bit today. Please keep that topic in mind as we head into today's sermon. Um, before we start, though, let me tell you about what's happening next week. So I'm very excited. We have a friend coming over. His name's David Pitt. So he's from City Bible Forum in uh, the city. So he works in an organization seeking to uh, bring the gospel out to workers in the city. So it's a fantastic ministry. And he'll be coming to share with us a little bit about what he does there and also share with us from God's word about uh, Jesus' mission and our mission. So I'm looking forward to that and having Dave along. And that's part of our aim to expand our partnerships with other organizations in our city and across the world preaching the gospel message. So that's what's happening next week, friends. Now, I wonder what you sort of came up with when you talked about that question, about what's the most important thing in the Christian life. There's a lot of different things uh, that um, you could have mentioned. Maybe it's living a holy life. Yeah? Did you get that? Did, did someone say that? Anyone? I don't know. Living a holy life, putting off sin, living righteously. It's okay if you didn't get that. There's not a, te you know, or there is a right answer, but I'll tell you later. Um, maybe, maybe you thought it was uh, coming to church regularly and meeting with God's people and encouraging one another. Maybe that's what you came up with. Maybe you thought the most important part of the Christian life is prayer. Maybe you thought that, um, yeah, this one, it's got to be it. Taking the gospel out to everyone, preaching the gospel, helping people to know Jesus. That must be it, right? Well, friends, let me tell you something. All of those things are useless without one key ingredient. And that is our love for God. Our love for God. Loving God is at the core of the Christian life. Without love for God... Nothing else matters. Let me tell you that. Nothing else matters. Yeah, so I wonder if some of you got that. Uh, the Bible reading gave you a bit of clues before. But the big question is not whether you got that answer right. It's whether you actually understand and comprehend the depth of what that actually means. What does it mean for us to love God? Why is it so important? And how do I do that better? Those are the sort of questions that we'll be asking today because loving God is the most important thing that we can do in our Christian life. It under, it's, it's the foundation of everything. Right? We need to understand what that means. In today's passage, we'll see that. Just to give you a bit of context of where we've been so far in our series on Mark, the servant king, in chapter 11, we saw Jesus making his triumphant entry into the city, riding on a donkey, coming as the lowly servant king, the king but the humble, lowly king. And he enters the city of Jerusalem, the capital city, and he heads to the temple, and he is angry. That's what we saw last week, didn't we? He is angry. He's angry at the way that Israel and its leaders have dishonored God, have not worshipped God as they should have. They've desecrated the temple. They've disgraced God. And he is rightfully and justly angered at that situation. And he declares judgment, judgment to all who dishonor God. And as the narrative rolls on, the conflict with the religious leaders rises. Uh, the religious leaders are quite upset that Jesus has 
made a scene in the temple and accused them of failing in their job. And the conflict keeps rising. That's what, uh, and we'll see this conflict keep rising as Jesus walks towards the cross. That's why he's in Jerusalem, walking towards the cross. And he, this narrative in chapter 12 actually outlines a few different episodes where he comes in confrontation with the religious leaders. The first episode is where he faces them and they ask him a question. They're trying to trap him in his words. They're trying to ask him questions so that he'll say something wrong. So the first question they ask him is about paying taxes to Caesar. What's Jesus going to say about this? Should we support the pagan governments? What should, what's he going to say? And then another group of religious teachers comes in and asks him about the resurrection on the final day. That idea that we'll all be raised at the end, which is a biblical idea, but they start asking about marriage and who's going to be married to who and things like that. And they're trying to trap him in his words. And as you heard from the reading before, Jesus shuts them down completely. They fell in their task. But what we're really going to focus on today is the third confrontation that Jesus has with the religious teachers. And this one is different. This one is different, and it's very, very significant. And we're at our first point. What God really wants. What God really wants. So the teacher of the law has been talking to Jesus, um, or has been listening to Jesus as he's disputing with the other religious teachers, and he's quite impressed by Jesus. So he comes up to Jesus, and he actually asks him a question. He says, which, Jesus, which, which one is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment out of all the commandments? And back, you know, they had 600 of them. Which one is the greatest? And this is what Jesus says. In Mark 12, verse 29. Have a look at Mark 12, verse 29. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. That's how Jesus replies. And judging from the narrative so far, what we actually expect is a religious teacher to debate with Jesus, to try and trap him in his words, to attack him. But the response that he gets is very different. I don't know if you noticed that in the reading before. It's a very different response because the man replies with these words. Well said, teacher. Well said. You are right. There is nothing greater than these commands. Burnt offerings, sacrifices, they are, they are useless compared to these. And what's actually happened here is extraordinary when you think about it. Because the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, all the religious teachers, they've been sending people to Jesus to try and attack him, to try and bring him down, to try and trap him in his words. And here we see that one of the religious teachers has been forced to acknowledge Jesus been forced to acknowledge the wisdom of the king. And this plan to trap Jesus in his own words has completely backfired because one of the enemies has turned and come to Jesus' side. Come to the servant king. This is significant, isn't it? This is a man, when you think about it, his whole life is centered around religion. His whole life is centered around burnt offerings and sacrifices and doing stuff. And now he's come to the realization through the words of Jesus, through Jesus' words, that those things don't matter. But what matters is love. Love. Our love for God. Jesus has shown him 
that this is what matters. Loving God. Loving God. Loving God. That's what matters, friends. It's the same back then, and it's the same today for us. Loving God. That is what matters. And let me talk to you a little bit about what this love looks like. This isn't the sort of love that is temporary. It isn't the sort of love that is uh, fluffy and uh, just a nice fuzzy feeling. It isn't the sort of love that is here one day and gone tomorrow, that is strong sometimes and is weak other times. The sort of love that Jesus is talking about is everything. Verse 30, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. Did you notice a common word in that verse? All. All. It's everything. You bring everything to the table when it comes to love of God. Every fibre of your being, every ounce of who you are, absolutely everything, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, everything. Everything. That is the love that Jesus demands. It's everything. Do you understand that, friends? Everything you have. But so often our love is dependent on our time and our energy after we've done everything else in our life. Isn't that the truth? After work, after school, after study, after family, after kids, after holidays, even after Netflix. And what we do is that instead of bringing everything to God, giving Him all of our love, all of our being, every fibre of our being to God in our love, what we give Him are the remnants of our affections. We give Him the remainders of our love. We give Him the leftovers of our heart. And that, my friends, is not right. That is not right. Because this is God we're talking about. This is God. This is not what God wants. He wants all of your heart. He wants all of your affection. He wants all of your love. He wants everything. He wants everything. And let me tell you something. He deserves it. He deserves it. We're at our second point. Why we should love God. There might be some of you sitting here as I say these things and all you're thinking is that God is asking too much. He is asking way too much. This isn't realistic. This isn't reasonable. It's not logical. How can I give him everything that I have? How's that, how's that even possible? Well, let me tell you, if you're thinking like that, if that's your mindset today, then let me tell you what the real problem is. The heart of the problem. Are you ready for this? is that you haven't seen God rightly. The heart of the problem is you haven't seen God rightly. Because when you think about love, love is not something that exists in a vacuum. It's not something that exists on its own. Love needs an object, right? Love needs a focus. You need to love someone or something. You can't just love, right? And that's uh, the, the thing that we're loving, the object of our love, determines the strength of our love. Uh, let, me, let me ask you about the things that you love in your life. Right? What sort of things do you love? I, I, I often hear people, especially in a 
uh, my Asian friends talking about food. They love their food, right? And think about your favorite food now. Why do you love that food? It's because it's so good. It tastes so good. You love the texture. You love the flavor. You love it for what it is. Or if you think about, you know, your spouse, your husband or wife, if you're married, um, why do you love that person? Because in your eyes, they're beautiful. They're kind. They're your soulmate. You love them for who you are. You see how excellent they are. You see how good they are. And whether it's art or music or people, whatever it is, our love of something comes when we know something or someone as good, as excellent and beautiful. And when we see something as good as, and excellent and beautiful, then our hearts are naturally captivated by that particular thing, right? That thing becomes the object of our affections, the objects of our love as we appreciate and see how good that thing is, how good that person is. And when we look at God... We look at our God and we see how good and how excellent and how beautiful, how majestic, how powerful, how awesome, how great He is. If you actually understand that, if you see that, then our hearts, they will naturally go out to Him. They cannot help but be captivated by His glory and how great that He is. That's what happens when you see God, when you actually see God for who He is when we see God's, God rightly, our hearts will overflow with affection for Him. And let me show you who He is. Let me show you. In Jesus' reply here, um, that He replies to the Pharisees uh, who are asking Him, uh, He actually quotes from Deuteronomy 6. So it's an Old Testament book. Um, it actually outlines Moses, the prophet Moses, on the border of the Promised Land. And He's giving... Uh, a sermon to the Israelites as they're just about to enter the promised land. And he's urging them to um, stay obedient. Make sure you keep listening to God's commands as you enter the promised land. But amidst all these commandments, all these uh, exhortations about obedience, what he actually starts with is this. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. These are the words that Jesus quotes as he replies to the Pharisees. These are very familiar words to any faithful Jew. They prayed these words morning and night. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And before we even think about loving God, before the subsequent commands to love God, love your neighbor, obey, this has to be the starting point. Do you see what it's saying? You have to look at who God is. Who is your God? that you're called to love, He is one. He is unique. He is the one and only God of the universe. He is utterly holy, utterly by Himself. He's transcendent. He's on a different level. He is unmatched in glory and majesty. There is no one like Him. Your God is one. There is no one like Him. That's the call. What we need to realize is simply this. God is God. God is God. The holy God, the one true God, the only God. 
This is the God that we are called to love. And we think about how majestic and awesome our God is. That should be enough for your hearts to be captured by Him. When we talk about loving God, this is not some high school crush we're talking about, friends. This is the God of the universe. The God of the universe. The one who spoke the creation into being with His very words. The one who scattered the stars into space. The one who knows every hair on your head and gives you every breath that you have to breathe each day of your life. This is our God. This is the one that we're talking about. He is the one that we're called to love. Do you see Him? If we really comprehend Him, this, it should be enough. But there's more, friends. Because we look at who He is, but we also look at what He's done. Because this is also how God shows us who He is, through His action. Later on in the passage of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 6, when Jesus, which Jesus quotes from, we read this passage. Have a look at this passage, verse 20 to 21. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Now, any of you who are parents will understand this verse quite well because uh, your children will ask you why for everything in the world. Uh, I think toddlers do it like hundreds of times in a minute. I think that's the stat. That's my stat anyway. They always ask why. And Moses is anticipating this question and he says to the Israelites, when you tell your kids you know, to love God and to obey God and they ask you why do you have to do that, this is what you're supposed to say to them. Because he saved you. He saved you. He saved you out of slavery to Egypt and redeemed you and brought you into freedom. This is why you're called to love your God. That's a pretty good reply to a child, I think. God shows us who He is through His action, through His works in history. And what we see about who God is is that He is the God of salvation. He's the God of salvation. He was the God of salvation for His people back then. He's the God of salvation for us right now. He redeemed His people from slavery to Egypt back, in, back then. And today, He redeems us from slavery to sin and death. He saves us. He saves us, friends. God is our Savior. The one, the one God the holy and majestic God, the unique and utterly transcendent God, comes to earth as a lowly man and dies a disgraceful and shameful, humiliating death on the cross for us. That's what our God has done for us. The God of love, of mercy, of grace, when we were least deserving, He came and died for us. This is the God we're called to love. When we truly see Him for who He is and what He has done, how can your heart not be moved? We love Him because He first loved us. Think about what God has done. He's given everything for us. He's poured it all out for us. He came and sacrificed Himself, His very life for us. And He's calling us to love Him. In response, 
when we see this is our God, a God so loving, so merciful, so gracious, how can our hearts not be captured by Him? Friends, even in our earthly relationships, when you think about that, when someone shows you, um, shows you love, you know, whether that be a parent who cooks you a meal or a spouse who gives you a loving gift, uh, aren't we drawn to that person more? Don't we appreciate more who they are, what they've done, their goodness? That's the way we treat our human relations. How much more for God as we see the sacrifice that He's done for us, as we see the great heights of the love that He's shown us? What's our response? What's our response? If you're not someone who calls yourself a Christian and you're here with us today, I hope that you can see what I'm saying uh, has truth in it. I hope you can appreciate that. Because I hope that you can see that when you see someone, when you have someone who's this good, then love is something that is deserved. They deserve love. But for all of us, let me say something. The aim of this sermon is not to force you to love God. All right? I'm not here to try and force you to love God, to push this burden on you that this is what you have to do. You have to love God. The aim of this sermon is just to show you who God is. Because when you actually see God, then that's where your love will naturally flow out and belong to Him. Because then, and only then, will love come. Remember this, friends. Loving God flows from knowing God. Loving God flows from knowing God. If you don't know who God is, you don't appreciate who He really is, what He's actually done for us, then how on earth can you love Him? Friends, let me ask you this. How's your love for God going? How's it going? I'm sure that many of us feel like we're not loving God like we should. We wish we could love God better. Or there might be some of us, some of us here who haven't actually even thought about it. It's not even on our radar just because of all the other stuff in life. But let's take a lesson from the text as we continue in our narrative. And we're at point three, why we don't love God. After Jesus wins over one of his enemies over um, in that discourse about love, he goes on to teach in the temple. He teaches first on his identity as the Messiah, even greater than King David. And the people are delighted. And you can see these people, they're starting to be captivated by who Jesus is. They're starting to love Jesus, see who he is. And Jesus goes on to teach. Verse 37. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. And Jesus here, he condemns the teachers of the law. Why does he condemn them? Because they're arrogant, they're proud, they're self-centered. He condemns their behavior. These people were important and they knew it. They wore special robes that no one else could wear, only the religious teachers could wear. When they walked by in the street and in the marketplaces, people had to rise to show respect to them. And these guys, they loved it. They loved it, absolutely. But the problem was, they failed to love God. How do we know this? 
because they fail to love others. If you look at those verses, do you see what they do? They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. They devour widows' houses, widows, the oppressed, the vulnerable, the down and out, those who need help the most are taken advantage by these men. And we can see that they don't love God because they're not loving others. And if you notice when Jesus spoke before, what commands did he hold together? He held loving God and loving others as an inseparable command. These things together make the greatest commandment. Because there is no way that you can love God and not love others. Because a true love of God will overflow naturally to love of all those around you. They're inseparable. In Jesus' eyes, they go hand in hand. And that's a good diagnostic for you and me, isn't it? As we look, do we love others? Because our love of others or our lack of love of others is a manifestation of our hearts and our relationship with God. And here, here these teachers of the law, they fail this test miserably. They fail it miserably. And let me tell you why. Because they love themselves more than they love God. They love themselves more than they love God. Our hearts, friends, are worship centers, right? They worship all the time. They're designed to worship. Even if you're not religious, you're worshiping something. You're devoting your love. You're devoting your energy. You're devoting your worship to something or someone because that's what our hearts are geared towards. How do we know this? Well, if you can look at your life and you can think about the things that you love I think I can safely say that for many of us the things that we're the thing that we're actually loving is not God but it's ourselves it's ourselves we love ourselves we know this because we pour all our energy and our time and our effort and our money into ourselves have a look at your calendar have a look at your bank statement. Have a look at your life. Where is all of that worship going? So often it's just coming back to here, to us. This week I asked some of you what stops you from loving God, and thanks for all those who responded. I really appreciated the honesty of those responses. And let me tell you about the themes that came up over and over and over again. Materialism, Money, pleasures of the world. Over and over and over again. Those are the things that came up. These are the things that stop us from loving God. And let me tell you, what's common in all of those things? Well, it's you. It's you. They're all centered on self. Centered on self. Materialism, money, pleasures of the world. Centered on self and satisfying your heart, your way, like you want. One of the honest responses I have sums up things well. I hope it's anonymous. I hope you don't mind I'm using this. It says this, I love and put other things that make me feel good before God and love those instead. Isn't that the truth? I love and put other things that make me feel good before God and love those instead. It's the things that make me feel good, the things that I want the things that are about self, these are the things that I love. I wonder if that resonates with you. 
Friends, we, we love ourselves, and this is not the way it should be. Brothers and sisters, we need to refocus our love. We need to realign our love. We need to bring it back to the one that deserves all our love, our honor, and our glory. And let me tell you how to do that. We will not defeat this problem of self-love by simply trying harder. You can't just will yourself to love God more and just hope that it will happen. Just, I'll just try harder to love God and it will happen one day. It will just happen. Your heart will not simply let go of this ingrained habit of yours to love yourself because you've been doing that since you were a little child. That's your heart. It's called sin. Right? And it naturally will not let that go. The only way to stop loving yourself and having yourself as the object of your affections is to have something or someone better and more excellent to love, to replace that love, to refocus that love. We need to refocus our love. And that can only come when you actually replace the love of self with a love for God. This comes from knowing God. And loving God, loving God flows from knowing God. And friends, let me tell you something quite elementary, which we often neglect. If you want to know God, if you really want to see how excellent and mighty and worthy of your love He is, then you need to spend time with Him. You need to spend time with Him. Uh, let me take a minute to give you a quick marriage tip. Um, I've worked out a strategy for a really successful marriage. So listen up, everyone. This is how you grow a really successful marriage. You um, don't talk to your spouse. You never spend time with them. You never share about yourself with each other. Guaranteed you fantastic marriage. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? Then why do we treat God like that? There is no way on earth that you can develop a relationship with God and grow your love and affection with Him if you never spend time with Him. We don't treat our earthly relationships like this. Why would we treat God like that? You need to spend time with God. You need to invest in this relationship. You need to develop this relationship because then and only then will you learn who He is and know who He is deeply. This is a relationship we're talking about, friends. It's not an intellectual activity. And the way that we get to know God, the way we get to spend time with God, to be in His presence, is through the revelation of His Word, as He shows us who He is through His words. Let me ask you, have you ever tried to build a relationship without words? Have you ever tried to build a relationship without talking to someone, or you know, texting someone, writing them a letter, whatever it is? No, of course not. Because God has made us relational creatures that express ourselves through our words. This is how we show people who we are. And it's no surprise that this is how God works too, because He made this whole relationship thing. Yeah, He's the one that created it. It is through words that we express ourselves, that we reveal ourselves, that we really know who each other are. And it's the same for God. This is how He shows us who He is through His words. So as you look at your Bibles in front of you, as you read the words of God, this is God building relationship with you. This is you building relationship with Him. As you hear Him, 
speak to you through his word, as you see who he is through his word, as you see in history how he's acted and what he has done and how good he is, as you see him come to earth as the man Jesus Christ and love others and teach others and die on the cross for us, as you see his actions and his beauty and his glory, as you see that through his word, that's how we build our relationship with him. That's how we spend time with him. That's how we learn to love him better as we meditate on his word and get to know him more and more and more. Friends, let me remind you, this is what really matters to God. This is what really matters to him. So often I think we just get distracted by getting busy with life and even getting busy serving God, doing stuff in church and doing stuff, you know, like uh, being on a roster here and serving But when we do that, we neglect to spend time with Him. And what a shame that is. We neglect to sit down with the words of life. Spend time with God. We neglect to give Him thanks through prayer as we communicate with Him as well, as we engage in this relationship of father and children. And as we neglect our relationship with God, then we're left wondering, Where did all the passion go? Why do I feel so dry? I'm not growing like I used to. And we wonder why that's the case. Well, we haven't spent time with God and haven't invested in that relationship. And our hearts are being captured by every other thing in this world except for Him. I know for a fact that there are many of you here who want to love God better. You've told me that. Well, it's time to do something about it. It's time. We need to take action. If we want to love God better, we need to know Him better, we need to do something about that. And let me tell you what you need to do. You need to pick up your Bibles, put away your phones, get a real Bible so you're not distracted. Pick up your Bibles, go somewhere quiet without anything to distract you. You need to open your Bible and you need to read it. And you need to spend time with God. And you need to appreciate who He is and be in awe of what He's done for us. And then you need to pray. Pray in response to what He's done and pray for God to change that hard heart of yours. And then you need to just spend time and enjoy time with God. And then you repeat. Repeat. And you keep doing that every day of your life till Jesus Christ returns and takes us home. That's how we grow our love for God. And please do not give me excuses. We can all make excuses, myself included. It's so easy for us, but please do not give me excuses because this is God we're talking about. This is God we're talking about. He and He alone deserves it. If anyone deserves our affections, if anyone deserves our hearts, then it's God. He deserves it. He is not too much effort for you. This is the God of the universe we're talking about. He deserves your everything. Everything, friends. Let me finish on the last part of this narrative. As we finish this narrative, what Jesus does is he, um, he actually sits, takes a seat, and he watches the people putting offering in to the temple offering. 
Don't worry, we don't do that here, friends, so don't feel too self-conscious. So he just sits there with his disciples and watches people actually putting offering into the temple offering box. And he sees plenty of rich people coming along, and they're putting in huge amounts of money, huge amounts of money. But then he sees a poor widow come along, and she takes out two little copper coins, and the narrative, the text tells us it's worth a few cents. And she puts those two little copper coins into the box, and then walks off. And this is what Jesus says. Oh, sorry, I didn't put it on the slide. But verse 34. Have a look at verse 34 with me. So Jesus calls his disciples together and he says this. Mark 12, verse 43. Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Now, if we saw this woman, if we were there back then, we wouldn't be very impressed with her. A poor woman all alone, probably in shabby clothes, coming and putting in a few cents into the offering box. It wouldn't be very impressive to us. I fear that even if she walked in today, we wouldn't be very impressed with her. In fact, we, in our upper middle class church, we might be even a bit repulsed by her as she comes in and puts in a few cents into the offering box. But Jesus is very impressed. He commends her highly with the highest praise. She has given everything. She has given everything. And this is a woman that you know loves God. You know she loves God because she gives everything that she has. Everything. There is nothing left on the table. She gives everything that she has to God and she recognizes that He and He alone deserves it. And this is an example to us, isn't it, friends? This is what we're called to, to give everything that we have. Because remember what Jesus calls us to in these words, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, everything, everything, friends. Because He deserves it. He and He alone deserves that. Let me pray. Father God, we pray that you'll show yourself to us, that you'll remind us who you are. Forgive us that we have even forgotten that for a minute, that we've neglected to see you for your majesty and your glory and your power and your mercy and grace. Forgive us for putting you into a box that fits into our lives, but help us to see how huge you are. And may that truth just capture our hearts and captivate our affections so that our love will belong to you and you alone. Father, do that work in us by your Spirit, we pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.